Oh, yeah. Here we go. Book of Philippians, open up your Bible. At last, we are here, everyone. We're here. Um, I should say, just as, as we get going, you, you know, we look at this whole transition process of everything that's happened this moment. You've seen it from the perspective of the church. We've seen it from the perspective of our own family and what the Lord has done uh, to bring us here. I think at one point in our transition, getting from California here, our possessions were spread out all over Beetle County and parts of Gettysburg. And uh, Mike Brosnan was kind enough to let us store some of us our possessions at his place. Um, and it's as we look at, like from March particularly up until now, we were here at the end of April. Um, we got back. You should know the next day we put our house up on the market sold it in about 19 days, got everything in a Penske. Oh, by the way, needed to get a U-Haul, and then all of that and ended up here. And then I went to Germany uh, for a month. My wife bought a house while I was there, um, and it's actually really, it's, 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 she did a great job. And, and so this last month, if you have felt like he's here in our town, let's get to work. I, I will say this last month of July has been just really it's been really just sweet, right? Just as a family for us to reflect back on what God has done, to look forward to the future. And um, I, I think of uh, the, the moment where we all knew this was going to be real was Brad Waddle, uh, who, was, who was quarterbacking the search committee, called me up uh, before we came to preach out in view of a call. And he said, well, I hope you have a deep freeze. And, and that was his way of saying, people give meat here. So we have traded the fruits and nuts of California for the meat and corn of <laughs> South Dakota. And we're, we're particularly, particularly thankful uh, for that. You'll be happy to know also, I got my South Dakota driver's license on Friday. And so, yes. And that was, that was a big moment. Uh, when I went from Texas to California, that, was, that one hurt a little bit. But now it's like from California to South Dakota, I've already done it once, I can do it again. But you know, that, it's not just a piece of plastic, right? It represents identity. This is now what I belong to. And so figuring out uh, culture, figuring out uh, just different things, great faces, great places, East River, not West River, uh, supper, supper is dinner and dinner is lunch. If you say come to dinner, I am going to have no clue what you're saying. So you have to make that from the beginning very clear uh, to us. It's a, it's a fast learning curve. And in the midst of all of this, you can go, who are we? Right? Who, who are we now in the midst of this season? If I were to ask you that question, I say, who are you? What would be some of the first things that would come out of your mouth? Would you say father, husband, wife? Son, daughter, teacher, businessman, farmer, something else. What, what would come to your mind? That is a central question that every single one of us must be very clear on. Who am I? You look at our modern American culture, what's the thing that you hear about in the political sphere? You hear of identity politics, right? It's become more in vogue in our day to ask this question, how do you self-identify, the blurb on your social media page, your Twitter handle or whatever is more sacred than it ever has been before, right? 
You notice that in all these samplings I just gave of identity, all of them have something in common. They are tethered to being inwardly focused. How do I relate to another? What is the job that I do? How do I feel and how I self-identify? They're all inwardly focused. But one thing that they all have in common also is that they are all prone to change. All of these things are prone to change. You may be a husband or a wife, but you've met that person who goes through a divorce, and then the ground is very shaky underneath them, right? Who am I becomes very difficult to answer. You see a parent who did everything to raise up a child in the way that he should go, but somehow he ended up departing from it. Was there something that I did? It's, I thought I, I had made my whole identity in being a parent, and now what? You've met that uh, student or, or that athlete, as I have in college, who is the star basketball player, and in the first game of preseason, he blows his ACL, and now he's sitting in his dorm room going, what do I do now? Or as one pop singer who I think for the third time uh, has changed how she self-identifies has done that this week because how she feels is different. All of these things are, are prone to change. And this is where I think the great hope of the Christian comes in, is that there is a solid rock upon which we stand, which we were praying for uh, over Rick just a moment ago. Something that the theologians have called immutable, unchangeable. What could that possibly be? I think the answer comes right out of the book of Philippians. This is where we're going to be for the next 13 weeks, I believe. And Paul tells us how he identifies. Let's, let's look in here. So Paul, and by the way, you should know this. I, I'm reading out of the English, English Standard Version. That will be what I will typically use for, uh, for the sake of just when we gather here uh, together in the morning. So on Sunday. So this is what Paul says. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this morning, all I want to do to give you a roadmap of where we're going is to ask three questions. Who am I, or who are you, the individual? Who are we as a church what are we doing here when we're gathered, when we're here on Sundays? Who are we? But most importantly, who is he? Because how you answer that third question determines the first two. Okay? This book is, you could read it in about 12 minutes. It is it's better, we should refer to it as a letter. It is a letter um, that has certain qualities about it. If you look at um, who this letter is written to, I refer you to Acts 16. We don't have time to go there this morning. We will at some point to get the background, but for this point, we need to understand this. Paul is writing a letter to the church at Philippi that he is the church planner of. It's the first church in Europe that he, that he plants. A couple weeks ago, I was meeting uh, with Anthony, with Pastor Anthony, we were talking about how our working relationship was going to work, and he was telling me about what he has done. I was telling him about where I've been, and and Anthony, we we're looking at okay, we we're looking at age difference, and we we're looking okay, this is what you were dealing with when you were in college. This is what I was dealing with when I was in college, and you should know he self-identifies as what he calls a geriatric millennial. Okay, <laughs> and, and for me, I would just identify as a regular. 
uh, millennial. And so I was a part of that generation of that, that group of students where I can remember the transition from the home phone to the pager, to the razor, and then eventually to the iPhone. I remember in class, I still remember writing notes uh, to, to the person that you, that you had a crush on. You'd fold it and you'd send it up, you know, three rows. But eventually you got to just texting instead. So for all of us who forgot how to write a letter, this is how it works. Someone says, dear John or dear Susie, I hope you are doing well, blah, 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 blah. Yours truly, sincerely, warm regards, whatever you want to put there, and your name, right? And that's exactly what is here. And so Paul being Paul, though, when he writes an introduction, he doesn't just write an introduction. This is why we're talking about it. We didn't just skip over it like we normally do in our devotions. Here, he loads it with Christian meaning. And so we, to our detriment, if we ignore this passage, we will, we, will, we will miss what comes next. Let me show you what I mean. Everything in this passage forecasts what comes next. And these 32 little Greek words, for you perfectionists who are checking me, that's 37 English words in case you really care. But you notice that how Paul calls him a servant, himself a servant of Jesus, that forecasts the, the telling in chapter 2 of the famous hymn of the suffering servant Jesus who came, died, resurrected from the dead. You see how he calls the church here saints. And that forecasts again in chapter 2 about how as holy ones you are called to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to accomplish his good pleasure and so on. Jesus is described as how? Look at, look at verse 2. How is he described? As the Lord. And that forecasts about how the one who is resurrected from the dead in that same hymn that I referenced a moment ago, his father declares that he is the Lord. And every knee will bow, whether you want to or don't want to in the end. And we will all declare that Jesus is Lord. So this passage has all the themes right in it. So that's the first thing. It's a letter, major themes. Second, it's Paul's situation. Paul most likely is in Rome in prison, and he is writing to this church, and it's kind of ironic in how him and Brother Tim self-describe, because look at how they describe themselves. If you were to ask Paul that first question, so let's get after it, first question, who am I? If you ask Paul that question, he's going to say, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, for us in the church, it is, um, when we read passages like this, it's so easy to just, if we've read it before, if you've read it 5, 10, 20 times, to just run right past this. But it's actually almost kind of odd that he would say this. Let me, let me show you what I mean. You notice that in some of your translations, in my translation it says servant. Yours might say bond servant, it might say slave, or something similar to that. What are the translators trying to do? What they're doing is they're cognizant of the fact that you and I are approaching this text with North American lenses. And so when we hear the word slave, what, what can easily come to our minds? Well, you can think of the 19th century chattel slavery of Africans, right? You might think of, uh, of someone being sold um, in an auction or something like that. But for Paul in the first century, there's enough of a difference. And so that difference would be like this. In the first century, slavery would have been m more like this. Though there would be that clear distinction of own ownership owned by another, uh, one thing would be different is that it wasn't limited to one ethnic group. A second thing about ancient slavery is that um, it wasn't necessarily for the, all of your life. 
You could eventually buy out your slavery, uh, buy, buy, buy your freedom. And third, that goes right with that second point. Um, if you were a slave, you could own and develop capital. You, you, could, you could own private property. And so there's enough of a variance that your, your translator may use a different word to make sure that we're not only thinking of that 19th century uh, understanding. But yet for both, it's clear that when Paul describes himself, he is describing himself as someone who is owned by someone else. He belongs to another in humble servitude. So do you see how it's kind of odd now? So he's going, hi, I'm Paul. I'm not only in, in, in chains in Rome, but I'm also a slave. And, and you go, well, why would you say that, Paul? That seems kind of odd. Unless you understand that the one who Paul is chained to makes him the most free person of all. A slave or a servant of Jesus Christ is the most free person. Let me show you how this plays out. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, a church that has a ton of problems will eventually get there, and we'll look at 1 Corinthians together. But in chapter 4, he says this to them. Think of this. I want you to really think of this. If you are someone who is concerned about what others think of you, or you live in self-criticism, this is what Paul says. He says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Tim Keller, in his little essay, about 46 pages, I recommend you read it, paraphrasing what Paul is saying here, is he's saying, I don't really care what you think about me. In fact, I'll go one step further. I don't really care about what I think of me. I care what the Lord thinks of me. In a world where it seems like the best counsel that is given is that your, your problem is a, is a deflated ego and you need to think more highly of yourself. Paul says that's, you're just altogether wrong. The source of your identity is not in what you say about yourself or what others say about you. It is about what he says of you. And so he lives in such freedom as a servant of Christ. I'll give you another example. Later in chapter 4 of Philippians. Paul will say this, and he'll say, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. What situation are you in right now? Can you honestly say that you are living in the peace of God that surpasses all understanding? I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. This is a person who is free from anxiousness. Let tomorrow take care of itself. I gotta deal with the trouble of today. I can live in freedom. For the Christian, no circumstance, word from others, or word you say over yourself really matters because it is the verdict of what God has said over you because of what his son has done. So, if, so let's put this together. So if Christ has died on the cross, has resurrected from the dead, and he has won our justification, he has done the only righteous work that could lead to our salvation for us, and then we, by faith, grab a hold to that reality. We put on the righteousness of Christ, and so when the Father looks at you and me, he doesn't see sinner. Though we are a sinner, we are also at once righteous. And so he sees his son on us and says, this is my, my son and my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And as Christians, we throw up our hands and go, who am I that, that God Almighty would think that of me? And so think of that person whose opinion you have sought after for so long 
They may be dead. (laughs) They may be still living. You may be dealing with them tomorrow when you go to work. Does that person change the reality that your father looks at you and says, this is my son and daughter in whom I am well pleased? Does your circumstance make the historical events of Christ's resurrection any less true? The Christian can look at uncertain circumstances, fickle words of men, can stand in the face of all of these things that are prone to change and say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And then further, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds where within the veil. Man, that's something that I want to be chained to because that means I am so free and there's nothing the world can do about that. So it doesn't matter what comes. I trust the promises of God. That's what it means to be a servant of Jesus Christ. So let me, let me make this very real for, for you and for me. Am I a Texan, a Kansan, a Californian, or now a South Dakotan? I really don't know anymore, but here's what I do know. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Am I, am I, am, am I, am I white or am I Hispanic? See the brown man right there? That's my dad. See the white lady next to him? That's my mother. Now all of this makes sense. Do I know? I don't, know, I don't even know, but here's what I do know. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. How about for you? Are you a widow or a widower? Are you, are you happily married or not? Are you someone who is anxious in your business life? Are you an ambitious student? Are you a lonely, are you a lonely child? You may be any of those things or something else, whatever you are. But here's what you can know. If you have called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, You are first a servant of Jesus, freed from the bondage of sin, and you can live in freedom in Christ to then serve others. And that gets to the second thing here. So who are we? When we're here together, who are we? If I'm first a servant, who are we together? Look at at the second part of verse one. How does Paul call the church here? He says, to the who? The saints. The saints, amen. Okay, so he has the saints. Now, you notice who he speaks to, okay? Does he say the educated? Does he say the talented and the gifted? The pastors? Surely the deacons come first. No, it's the saints. Is it one lady who has a smile on her face, running around with her hair on fire, making sure that VBS happens so that we can all say, wow, that was awesome? Or is it the whole church coming together and say, thank you for leading that, and look how we all served so that over our dead bodies would the next generation miss out on the grace and peace that comes from knowing Jesus Christ? Is it one bald guy? It's like I know several youth pastors that all are bald or losing their hair that is going, man, I'm trying so hard to make, I'm trying so hard to reach this next generation. No, it's a whole church coming together, the saints of Jesus saying over our dead bodies, will we let this next generation miss out on the grace and peace that comes from knowing Jesus Christ? It is not one person. It is not the spiritually elite. It is not the most educated. You can have PhD after your name, but it's just if you're not living within the grace of Jesus Christ and serving together within the body, right? And so you notice how he calls the church in Philippi saints. What does that mean? God's holy ones, right? God's holy ones. And so that means these are believers. So question, who makes up the church? Answer, believers, the saints, yes. And so how do I know that someone is a believer? 
Well, from the perspective of the church, it's that person who stands up and says, Jesus is both the Lord and Savior of my life. And where's the moment where you do that most clearly? It's by getting dunked, my friend, and going underneath the baptism waters and saying, I'm done with my old life, and I'm here to live a new life in Christ. And so all of us who are regenerate believers have declared that Jesus is Lord. We come together, and we serve. And what are we accomplishing when we're here? It's the work of discipleship and worship. Think of the church as a hospital where you've been going out and laboring in the, in, the, in the field of ministry, wherever you work, play, hang out. And then you come back here and go, man, I'm beat up. I'm sure there's a number of us in here, you may be wearing your church clothes, but man, things are falling apart on the inside. You are here, though, and this is where we come together, and we encourage one another, build each other back up, and say, Keep going. Keep going for another week. We serve and trust the promises of God. But it's not only that, it's also a barracks. Whereas disciples, we get equipped. And so the songs that we choose to sing are intentional. The things that we talk about come from God's word because we can trust that it is a sure foundation underneath our feet. We are here to grow together so that we go back out into that watching world. We are pushing back the, the, we are pushing back the forces of darkness together, not as, just as individuals. And so with all of us, we worship him also. And so we're worshiping and praising his name. So I don't know. I don't know if you've heard. But Bethesda is not in a holding pattern. She is not waiting. And it is not because a new pastor is here to hoop and holler and jump up and down and try to get your attention. But it's because the saints who are filled with the spirit of the living God within them gives you the ability to stand up and say, man, I'm here to go to work. Let's serve Jesus because if we have God who is for us, who can be against us? If he has said that I am free, man, let me live that free life. And others around me will see what does he have that I don't have? What is she doing that makes her different than others. And all of us will say, man, this is what it means to be on mission, that I'm making disciples of all nations. Some of us need to think about what all nations mean right here in our community, but I'm making disciples of all nations, and I'm doing that to the glory of God. That is what the mission of the church is. And I will say to you, for some of us who have been maybe sitting on the bleachers and just watching how this all plays out, friend, would you get in the fight with us? Because this is spiritual warfare that we are entering into. This is, this is, not, this is not me, all right? This is, this is not just, just a moment we're transitioning into a new season. This is a moment where we are now going to war together. That's what's happening. And so I would ask you, be blessed and commit to Christ's body today if you haven't done that yet. You notice who Paul speaks to secondly. He says, the overseers and the deacons. Let's do the deacons first. We're jumping right into the deep end today. Let's go. Deacons. Matt uh, Smith-Hurst describes deacons this way. He says, deacons are not the church's spiritual council of directors, nor the executive board to whom the pastor's CEO answers. They are the cavalry of servants, deputized to execute the elder's vision by coordinating various ministries. Deacons, I love this, deacons are like a congregation's special ops force, carrying out unseen assignments with fortitude and joy. Special forces, special ops. Um, you shouldn't think of Jonathan and the guys as assassins. That's not what that means. But instead, you should think of them um, as doing the work that nobody sees to make the lights turn on and ministry happen here. The motto of a deacon is to not let the left hand know what your right hand is doing. They, they are not so concerned about others seeing them serve, but the Lord seeing them and being faithful to him. And it's not just merely doing 
the work that nobody else wants to do as a deacon. In the history of the church, deacons have been the backbone for keeping the church going. In 258, I'll give you one example, Lawrence of Rome, Smethurst paraphrases Lawrence, who is a deacon, and the emperor calls all Christians to be, to be killed or to surrender, and this is what happens. Lawrence is soon taken before the magistrate, and the offer is this, to surrender the treasure of the church, and you'll be freed. So he's got to got to give all the money to the emperor, or otherwise he's going to die. So, so what does he do? He, he goes and he gets all of the people of the church. He gets the sick, the aged, the poor, and the widowed, and the orphan. And then he comes back to the court, and he says to the emperor, he says to the court, here are the treasures of the church. Here are the treasures of the church. I have brought what you asked for. And subsequently, he's given a martyr's death. The deacon endures the flame with startling calm, even quipped to his executioners as he's being burned. You can turn me over now. I'm done on this side. And then he says, The spectacle of Lawrence's profound courage makes a great impression on the people of Rome, and it leads to many conversions. Deacons have been the backbone of the church for two millennia. They are the ordained mercy ministers. And they carry out the operation of the church with gladness. And our deacons have done that over the course of this last season too. Their motto is that they look to Jesus who humbly washes the disciples' feet. That's what it means to be a deacon. And then you have the overseers, also known as the elders, the pastors. Next time you see one of the elders besides me, say, hey, pastor, how are you doing? And watch, them, watch, watch their eyes get big a little bit. But for the elders, I would say this to you. The elders are called to an impossible task. It's a miracle you're actually called to live out. You are called to shepherd the sheep. We are called to shepherd the sheep while also being a sheep ourselves. We are also a sheep. I don't even have any great story for you. No story for you. But this is the paradox that every elder faces. He is simultaneously a shepherd and a sheep a leader of Jesus' followers, and a follower of Jesus, an overseer of the local body while also being dependent on that body. An elder is a sinful man, but he's sustained and sustained by grace. Following the good shepherd, Jesus. Suddenly, Jesus turns to the elder. He shoves a shepherd's staff into his hand, and he says, feed my sheep. That, that's, you should know, that, that is my understanding of my call here at Bethesda, is to do that work of, here's the word, let me, come on, let's go. This is what we're doing. Let's, let's follow Jesus here. Because every elder understands that as a shepherd, he is underneath the good shepherd. He's just an under shepherd. And what distinguishes the office of elder versus that of a deacon is that he stewards rightly the biblical teaching of the church. That is his responsibility. Nothing is to hamper the gospel of Jesus. You protect and guide the sheep, and you may have to drive out the wolves. That is what the shepherd is called to do. If the motto of the deacons is to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, perhaps the motto of the elder is the impossible task of saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That ought to humble every single one of us. And so in our time, our elders and our deacons have done so much that most of us in here will have no idea what they have done to get us from, from Roy to Randall and now that I'm here. It will not just be me. It will be all of us. I had 
Uh, Rick had you stand before, but if you're an elder or a deacon, would you stand up real quick? You thought I was being commissioning in the service, but joke's on you. It's, it's all of us. Come on. Elders, deacons, thank you. Let's do the same thing. Yes, let's acknowledge them. Okay. No, 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 no. Stay standing. We're going to pray for you now. Okay. So, Lord, for each of my brothers that are here, as we step into this next season together, we say we are so dependent on you. We thank you for the work that you've done in each one of these men's lives, but now we say, Lord, would you give us wisdom to know how to proceed? Would you give us a faithfulness to care more about what you say than what man says? Would you give us humility to be unified together for the sake of this, the next season of this church? Lord, you know that I cannot do it alone, but it's with every single one of these that are standing including the whole body. It's all of us together. Lord, equip them, protect them from the evil one, and let us trust you as we set our eyes on Jesus who is above and on the things that are below. Amen. You can go ahead and sit down. Servants of Jesus, that's every one of us. Saints who make up the church. But third, who is he? Look at that second verse. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I would love to, and I'm sure you believe me when I say this, spend time on every single word here, but we will choose only one word. It's the and. The and between God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus really? It is not lost on me, friends. It's not lost on me. I've been thinking this over the last month that perhaps some of us are going, well, now we have a new pastor. Everything's going to be great. That's too much pressure. On the other side, it is not lost on me that some may think we have a new pastor. Oh, no. <laughs> What's going to happen? Right? It's also not lost on me that I am the same age that Jesus was when he started his ministry. Here's what I can guarantee you. His ministry it was more successful than mine will ever be, okay? But why? Was it because he was just a, a man ministering in Galilee? No, it's because he was the God-man. He was so much more. How, I wonder, has a church articulated who Jesus really is? He's on the same level as the Father, and here's what we can say. I believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, creator of all things that are seen and unseen, and I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Son of God, born of the Father before all worlds, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, through him all things remain. For us men in our salvation, he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary, and he became man. By the way, this, what I'm reading from is the Nicene Creed, is all built on the hymn from, from Philippians 2, which we will look at. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And so for for all of us, we can look not to just one person or a group of people, but we can look at the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because of what he has done for us. And all of us will be able to look at this entire community and say, welcome to Bethesda Church. By grace, 
we are servants of Jesus Christ. That's the season we are stepping in together. That's because of who he is and therefore who we are for him. Let us pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are good. And it is your nature which is unchangeable in the face of so many changing winds of the culture, how we feel, and so many other things of what others say. But we look in this moment and we say, Lord, we're going to trust you. We're going to humble ourselves before you. We're going to look at you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and say, we have nothing else but our Lord for us in this moment to get us into the next one. So we set our eyes on you, Jesus, and we trust you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here in April, you remember I did this, and this will be normal. If you are here today and you have never gotten real with Jesus, as in you have, you may, you may be a church person, but you don't know Jesus really. Your friends around you, your, your, your relatives want you to know Jesus, really. Here's what that means. God loves you. He sees your sin, and yet he has sent his son in your place to die the death that you deserve. The question is, what will you do about it? If you've been here and this is your first time in church, or this is your 30th year in church, but you have never surrendered and taken hold of Jesus, today is the day to do that, my friend. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy.org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.